elementary age kids or below, we'd love to have them be a part of. Mr. Greg is down again, so if you're middle school, I think we're sticking around here, unless Mr. Brandon decides he wants to uh, go for it today, but I don't see Mr. Brandon, so if you're in the middle school group, you're going to hang out with us today. Um, but elementary age kids, you're welcome to go. Oh, Mr. Brandon changed his mind. There he is. Hey, Mr. Brandon. All right, Mr. Brandon. Cooper, you can go. There you go. Anybody else middle school age can go be with Mr. Brandon. Saving the day. I like it. Uh, if you do have middle school age kids there, welcome to go back there. Mr. Brandon's taking over. This is how we shift gears really quickly around here. I just sort of tell Brandon he's teaching, and there he is. So happy Mother's Day. Pretty cool. Um, you know, we're all here because of you, so that's awesome. That's your Mother's Day sermon. I went by about 15 churches on my way down here, and every single one of them says, oh, come in for a special Mother's Day sermon. I was like, man, what a letdown to come here. Um, we don't have a special Mother's Day sermon. We're in the book of John, and what do, you, what do you want me to do, right? Just craft something magical out of there? No, the truth is, is that we are super grateful uh, for you as mothers, and we're celebrating you here today, and we're going to celebrate by being in John verses 14, study number 56. So um, hopefully this is powerful for you in its own special way. But we are glad that you're here. We all know that you have plans and things going on, and we are deeply honored. And there is a special, special place, of course, not only in our lives and our hearts, but um, in terms of Scripture for mothers. And so we are, we are honored that you're here. We are actually kind of in this long journey to the Gospel of John. Those who've been coming for a while know that we have been in this thing now for well over a year. We started in February of 2017. We are into study 56, and we have made it all the way to John chapter 14, and we are in this really unique section of the gospel called the Farewell Discourse. And so it's about, basically about four chapters in which Jesus is, a couple, of, a couple of times he's been interrupted with some questions, but really it's a lengthy piece of teaching that Jesus goes through as he prepares in the final hours for his ultimate betrayal and death and resurrection. And John is the only gospel that records this farewell discourse. The other gospels are really hung on the events that unfold, uh, the triumphal entry, the Lord's Supper, the washing of the feet, um, the betrayal, the crucifixion, the resurrection. They're very event-driven in their moment. And John, of course, as we've been talking about for all these weeks and months, is really geared around the deity of Christ. John's gospel is a theological argument for the incarnation. John wants you to know that Jesus is God. And all of this teaching that Jesus does from the Last Supper until he is betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane by Judas Iscariot himself is really powerful because Jesus is talking explicitly and without any sort of, oh, cover-up. He's being incredibly plain and transparent and talking to the disciples about who he is and what's going to unfold. And it's a really, really powerful section of text, and we're going to be in it for, for some time. We've been working through John chapter 14. And so what we've seen up until this point is that the disciples are really hung on a statement that Jesus made when he says, I am leaving you, and where I am going, you cannot come. And we saw Peter, and we saw um, Philip, and we saw Thomas all asking questions over the past three weeks to Jesus. They are really hung on the idea that Jesus is leaving, and he's leaving them, and where he is going, they cannot come. And they're asking clarifying questions, and they're trying to get to the bottom of it, but the truth is they just don't understand that what Jesus is talking about is spiritual in nature. And they are hung on the physical. Peter's hung on the idea of where is a physical location that you are going that we can't go to, right? Uh, Thomas and Philip are hung on really the same idea. How do we know the place we are going? If you told us we could come, we need directions. And they're hung on this sort of physical thing. They've yet to put all the 
sort of pieces of this puzzle together and understand. And it's hard to blame them, right? We have the beauty of hindsight and history on our side, and we know that Jesus is going to return to the Father. He's going to be crucified, return to the Father, uh, raised from the dead, and conquer death. We know those things. But the disciples are hanging on Jesus' words, and it's confusing, and they're lost, and they've got a lot of questions. And so Jesus is getting more and more direct and more and more clear, and he has been very clear in telling them that he is returning to the Father. And he's going to expound on that uh, this morning by introducing us to the fir- for the first time, as Jesus talks about, he's going to introduce us to the Holy Spirit. And that he is not going to actually leave the disciples and thus the followers of Christ alone, but he instead is sending, when he goes to the Father, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see how that unfolds this morning. And then we're going to look at an incredible promise that Jesus gives to us upon his pending departure, right? Because he is leaving, ultimately betrayed, crucified, and is going to die. So these are really incredibly theologically important verses that we're in, and you'll see why uh, in just a moment. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 14. We're going to be in 15 through um, 24-ish today, and I want you to understand uh, where Jesus is really leading us. He's leading us to the idea that his presence is going to be taken away from the disciples, But they are going to be given the promised Holy Spirit, and therefore they will never be alone, which is going to have incredible, incredibly important connotations for us as followers of Christ, that we have the indwelling Spirit and that we are never alone as followers of Christ. And so we'll explore that. But that's what Jesus is going to be leading them to, and they're going to, of course, miss the point again. Um, But we are going to see it. So uh, let's take a moment and let's pray, and then we will dive into this text together. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that it is living and active, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that you tell us it penetrates even the dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart, that your word, uh, God, is you, and to love you is to love your word. And so, Lord, we do not take our time lightly this morning as we open it. We do not think that this is just a guidebook for our life, a some kind of instruction manual by which we might live, or the truth is this is your love poured out for us on its pages. It is the Theopunestos. It is the breath of God. And so, Lord, as we encounter it this morning, um, change us. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Whatever that need you to hear, whatever God wants to speak to you, just invite the Lord to teach your heart this morning. take a moment and pray for someone beside you or in front of you, behind you. Pray that God would move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. We do this each week. This whole thing that unfolds on Sunday morning is not about you. We want to be a community that is invested and involved in each other's lives. We want to see God move in people. Pray for someone around you. Pray for your wife or your husband or your children or your friend. Or if you're here for the first time, pray for maybe that person you've never seen. Just be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would teach our hearts this morning through your word. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. 
So this discourse, they're all tied together. And we, of course, have to break it up because we can't get through it all in one morning. So we've been spending many mornings on it. And so you've got to remember that what we study today is intricately tied to what we studied last week, which is intricately tied to what we studied the week before. It's all the same breath. Jesus is speaking on the very night that is going to be betrayed. And that, that moment between the Last Supper, right, where he was, he was sharing that with the disciples and he washed their feet and all those things, where Judas Iscariot leaves to go basically begin putting the wheels in motion for his death and betrayal and crucifixion, all those things. He's left the room from that moment until they get up and leave and head to the garden to where the angry mob with sticks and torches, they come and they arrest Jesus. In those few hours, all of these things are unfolding. And so you've got to remember, they're part of the same monumental moment and monumental breath. And so this morning's text is contingent upon what we understand from last week. And I'll get into that more in just a little bit. But this is what uh, Jesus continues to say to his disciples in verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you, and I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father. And you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not the world? And Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. And he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So we begin that section with verse 15 that says, well, well, let me back up and let me say this. Okay, so if you've been coming for any period of time and you've heard me teach often or you heard me teach a lot, you have probably picked up on a few things um, that I tend to sort of do the same type of formula in the way that I teach all the time. If you're ever the first time, this is going to be earth-shatteringly new. But if you're here for this forever, you'll be like, really, we get that. Okay, but here's the deal. I have this deep desire, this deep love affair with God's Word. Like, my whole goal as a preacher is that I want you to have a love affair with Scripture. I really don't care if you feel entertained or if you um, feel like I don't put you to sleep or whatever those things are. I mean, I would prefer that you didn't hate me, and I would prefer that you didn't leave here going, well, I'm never going to get that 40 minutes back. Like, that's ridiculous. I would prefer that. But that's not my goal. My goal is that you would begin to have a love affair with Scripture. And so I want you to see it, right? So that everything that we do in the way that I teach is very bibliocentric, not like triblio-centric, right? It's bibliocentric. I want you to understand that this is God's Word, and I want you to have an encounter with it, not an encounter with me. Okay, that's, that's really important. So that's to say, I, I use a really simple formula in the way I sort of teach Scripture, and it's one that would have had me failing all of my hermeneutics class is in um, seminary. But that formula is really this. We look at a piece of text. I typically read it. I typically sort of re-explain it, right, and sort of add some life to it. And then I elevate a few things out of it that God has been teaching me, that he's doing and instructing in my heart. 
things that he is sort of powerfully showing me, areas that I'm failing, areas that I need to trust him or know him. And so you end up getting, out of all that, things that God is doing in me that I think are worth talking about that are coming directly from his word in that context and that scripture. And that's sort of the formula, right? It's not real fancy. It's not like, you know, three points in a poem like we learned in seminary or whatever. It's like, you know, this is sort of how I do it. Now, that being said, this morning's going to be a little bit different because the text lends itself to just sort of going through it and then, like, being done. Like, there's not, like, this great sort of accumulation at the end where you're like, and these are the great points that we all walk away. It's just sort of powerful, and it just lends itself to just being walked through. So what you're going to see a little bit this morning is that we're going to look at it a little bit differently because Jesus is doing some really incredible things theologically here. And in verse 15, he starts that process by basically saying, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Now remember, this is sort of tied to what we studied last week. And last week, Jesus says that if you ask me, I will give you anything that you ask for in my name. And we talked last week that there are some qualifiers attached to that, that Jesus isn't saying that if you go out in the middle of the street and you say, I want a million dollars in the name of Jesus, that it's going to rain down cash. There's qualifiers attached to that. We talked about God's will and being the hands and feet of Jesus and continuing to do the things that Jesus did. Well, this verse is really attached to that. He's basically saying that if you love me, you will obey what I command. So he's saying that if you love me, right, as part of this contingent of me showing my full expression to you, if you love me, you will obey what I command. There's a couple different ways of looking at that text. And they've been looked at a couple different ways by a whole bunch of different scholars. And, and there's one that I think is fatally flawed, and then there's one that I think is theologically correct. And the fatally flawed way of looking at that verse says, if you love me, you must do what I command. And the reason it's fatally flawed is because our doing things is the demonstration of our love for Jesus. It means that we have to do these things to prove that we love Jesus, right? So, while it sounds not too awful, the reality is that it's contingent on my doing to prove that I love Jesus. So if you love me, you must do or you will do what I command. So I am doing this for you because I have to, because I need to show you that I love you, right? You kind of see that. The one that I think is more theologically accurate is if you love me, you will do what I command, which means essentially that if you love me, you get to do what I ask you to do. Because I love you, you want to and are driven and are tied to doing the things that I command to do. It's not to prove your love, right? But it's because my love calls you to something different. And you get to love me. And it's intricately tied to how we think about salvation. All right? And I've talked about this before, but it's really worth mentioning here because how we think about salvation is really important. And there's really two key components to salvation. Right? And we've talked about this at length, but there's two big kind of theological words that are attached to it, justification and sanctification. Justification is a part of salvation. It's a work done in you, done, I mean, done for you. So justification is a work that's done for you. It's something that happens once and it's done perfectly, that when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, that literally he comes in and he removes death from you. That he takes all of the sin of your life and he puts it on himself and he atones for that sin and makes you perfect and holy in the eyes of the Father and you are saved. And the Bible is explicit and clear that when Jesus saves you and redeems you, you are saved forever. It is a one-time momentary thing that happens like that and you go from death to life. You are justified, right? And your sin is atoned for and forgiven through the blood and work of Jesus on the cross. It was death and resurrection and it's done for you. You can do nothing 
to be justified. You cannot love God well enough. You cannot show up to church enough. You cannot live in moral life enough. You cannot not murder enough people. Whatever it is that you try and do morally, it will never get you to a place where you are justified and saved. You cannot earn your way to salvation. Period, ever, end of story. The Bible is incredibly clear that while you were still sinners, Jesus died for you. While we were still sinners, he died for us and did what we could not do for ourselves. Therefore, our faith in Jesus justifies us from sin and death. So it's a work that's done for you. The second part of salvation is a work that's done in you, and it's a process of sanctification. The idea of sanctification is this process of becoming holy or becoming more like Jesus or maturing and growing in our relationship with Christ. And it is a process that begins at justification and goes on through the entirety of your life and never ends. That you are always in the process, once you're saved, of becoming more like Jesus. And it's what the Holy Spirit is working and doing in you. It is a response to your salvation, that you are in the process of always growing and maturing in Christ. And it's not a completely perfect process, and there's hiccups along the way, and you make mistakes, but in all those ways, you have been saved, and that is a line. There's no going past that line, but now you are always maturing and growing in your relationship with Christ, and the Holy Spirit is working in you and sanctifying you because of your salvation, your justification. Okay, all that to say that how we think about these verses really matters. Because the truth is, you cannot do things to prove your love for Jesus. Even your best efforts are worthless. They're awful. The best humanity we can give Jesus is not worth anything compared to his glory. So if we love Jesus, it's a response only because of what he has done in us. Sanctification is a response to justification, right? And following Jesus' commands is a response to his love first. It's the difference that says, I love Jesus and I obey Jesus because he did something for me that I couldn't do for myself. Theologically, they seem similar, but they're really, really different. I obey Jesus because I love him and I get to obey him. And not I obey Jesus because I have to show him that I love him. See, that's the humanity side of us that thinks that love has to be proven all the time. That I've got to show people that I love them by my actions, and if my actions don't perfectly match that up, then they question whether or not I love them. And what Jesus is essentially saying is that you've been saved, and that your love is an outward expression of what has taken place in you inwardly, and you get to obey Jesus because he has redeemed your life from the pit. So if you love me, you will obey me. Which means if we follow Christ, and he saved us and redeemed us, we get to obey him. He goes on to say this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. So Jesus says this. He says, okay, so if you love me, and he's looking at his disciples, followers of Christ, if you love me, you will obey what I command because you love me. Like you want to obey me and do what I ask because you love me because of what I have done for you. And I will go to the Father, and I will ask, and he will give you another counselor, the Spirit of truth. Now, this is the first time that we see Jesus actually talking openly about the Holy Spirit. And what we see here, when last week Jesus was talking about the relationship of the Father and the Son, and he even says it here, he'll say, I am in the Father. And when he talks about the Son or the Spirit now, we're seeing the, the movement for the full-blown doctrine of the Trinity which I hope to at some point in time get in here theologically and really talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. But for our purposes this morning, I want you to see that we have this relationship between the Father and the Son, the relationship between the Spirit and the Son, the relationship between the Spirit and the Father, and we're seeing the movement for the Trinity. 
And so Jesus says, I will go to the Father, because he's returning to the Father, and we will send, or he will send, right, another counselor to be with you forever. Because Jesus is leaving, right? His physical presence is leaving the disciples. And there's a lot of interesting things going on here with these words, all right? And so I'm going to try and elevate them, and you just have to bear with me for a moment, because they're worth, worth looking at. But the NIV translate that word counselor. Uh, a lot of other versions will translate it as helper, comforter, um, advocate. Uh, they translate that word. But the, the Greek word there is the word parakletos, or parakleton, which means we get our English word paraclete, all right? So the English word paraclete really means advocate. In antiquity, a paraclete was actually like a defense attorney. It was someone that would come to your aid when you were in trouble, when you needed someone to speak on your behalf. And so the Greek word there, parakleton, that's used there, is the idea of an advocate. It's not so much the idea of a counselor, like your high school guidance counselor that comes and puts their arm around you and says, look, you can be a mechanic or you can be a whatever, right? That's not really the role of the Holy Spirit. It's also not really a helper, like you're doing enough on your own, and the Holy Spirit kind of just gives you a little bump on the bottom, and everything works out really well. The, the, really, the definition that works best is the idea of an advocate, paraclete, that you have someone that speaks on your behalf and in your defense to the ultimate judge, to the Father, that the Holy Spirit is the one that speaks on our behalf, that stands in the gap from our death to life. And so Jesus says, the Father will send another paracleton, will send another paraclete, an advocate, to be with you forever. Now, if you heard that verse 16 right, you'll understand there's a word in there that sort of qualifies the idea of the Father will send the paraclete. And he uses the word another, which means he doesn't say that the Father will send the paraclete or the advocate or the helper or the comforter. He says the Father will send another which, of course, begs the question, who was the first? And, of course, we all know the answer, that the first of the paraclete was himself, Jesus. 1 John 2, 1 says this. It says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, the phrase there, speaks in our defense, is actually the phrase advocate. Well, basically, advocate for us. So Jesus Christ is the first advocate. He's the one who steps in on the cross in our defense, right, before the Father. And then they're going to send another advocate because the Holy Spirit will take on the role of Jesus' ministry in our life, but he will dwell in us and not walk physically presence beside us. The actual word paraclete is really interesting because it's made up of two things. It's got the first part, para, which means alongside, and kletos, which means to call. So paraclete really means to call, to come alongside, to stand in our defense, which was really Jesus' initial role, to walk alongside humanity, to go to the cross, to stand in defense of our sin and death. And so they will send the Holy Spirit who will take up the same role as Christ, but instead of walking physically with us, will now dwell in the body of all those that profess faith in Christ and will serve in the same role in that capacity as advocate, as defender, as the one that stands in from our broken, dead, condemned hearts and advocates for hearts of life, redemption, and freedom in Christ. Role of the Holy Spirit. But something really cool go, goes on again where John gives the title of the paraclete. He actually gives it another name. So he gives the Holy Spirit here another name, and he says this. He says he will send another, right, advocate, paraclete, counselor, helper who will be with you forever, 
the spirit of truth. So this, he gives the name of this advocate, the paraclete, the spirit of truth. And we know, of course, that the role of the Holy Spirit, right, as the inspirer of God's word, as the exposer of light and darkness, as the exposer of all falsehood, that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth that walks in our, lives in our hearts and dwells in us. And you get this real deep sense now that Jesus is leaving Right? He's departing, he's going back with the Father, but he's promising something incredible to the disciples and to every follower of Christ hereafter. That Jesus isn't leaving them, but he's leaving them, as we talked about last week, empowered, right? And he's sending the Holy Spirit, who will be our advocate and who is the spirit of truth, and as we're, as we're going to see, will actually dwell and live within each of us as followers of Christ. He goes on to say the world cannot accept him. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. So the world, right, the world that is out there apart from Christ, it does not accept the Holy Spirit. It won't accept him at all because it doesn't see him or know him. Right, because apart from a relationship with Christ, there is no spirit that dwells in us. So the world can't accept the idea because it can't see him and it does not know him. He says, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. So check that out. He lives with you, as in Jesus' presence, right? And he will live in you when I depart, advocating the relationship between the Spirit and the Son, which is all incredibly mind-blowing, right? I mean, this is what Jesus is basically just dumping out on the disciples, these incredible theological things that paved the way for the doctrine of the Trinity, the relationship of the Father and the Son, the relationship of the Son and the Spirit, the fact that Jesus is with us and departing, but he's sending the Spirit, he's going to dwell in us, the Spirit of truth that will guide and advocate and direct our lives and expose falsehood. And the world won't understand it, but you will, because not only have I walked with you, but now the Spirit will dwell in you, and you will know him, right, because he lives in you. I mean, this is, it's ridiculous, it's amazing, it's deep, but it's really powerful. He says this, he says, but you know him for he lives in you and will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, <clears throat> but I will come to you. So I don't know if any of you have lost, I, I have, I've lost a parent. I don't know if any of you have lost a parent. Um, but of course, it's incredibly painful and traumatic, right? There's something about losing a parent. My dad was, I was 23 and my dad died. My brother was 20. And I felt like I, I didn't feel like I was old then, even though we were out of the house. I still felt like I was young, and there were a lot of things that I still wanted my dad to teach me, or I wanted to know about him, or I wanted him to experience. I felt like I got, I got cut short, and there's a huge part of my life that was just painfully empty because he was gone. If you've ever lost a parent, you know what that's like. Jesus is anticipating what the disciples are going to feel and experience. He knows that he is headed to the cross. He knows that he is going to be crucified. He knows that essentially he's going to be ripped out of the life of the disciples. He has even told them, I am leaving. And he knows that for three years of their lives, they have depended on him and counted on him and walked with him and they have taught him and they had so much more to learn. And he's anticipating that when he goes, his departure is going to leave them feeling like they've been abandoned. Like something has been ripped out of their lives too soon, that they are going to be deeply hurt. He anticipates them feeling hopeless, like orphans. And in those days, an orphan really was hopeless. There were not a lot of options. There wasn't a foster care system. If you were an orphan, you would usually just be kind of, your, your 
basically set up for life would be a street child. And he anticipates the fact that disciples are going to experience this. And he says, listen, I want you to understand, even though they don't quite get it yet, that I am not leaving you as orphans, but I will come to you. Which could mean a couple of different things, right? I'm going, to, I'm going to come to you in terms of the Holy Spirit is going to come and dwell in you, and that will come at Pentecost. Or I'm going to come to you at the day of judgment. Or maybe I'm going to come to you a part of the resurrection. There's a lot of things there. But I think the next verse kind of shines a light on what Jesus is saying. Look, I am not abandoning you. I am not leaving you alone. I am not leaving you fatherless or as orphans. But I will come to you because before long, the world will not see me anymore. Meaning physically, no one will be able to lay physical eyes on me. Because I live, but you, he says, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. He says, listen, there is going to be a day when you will not see me any longer. But you, right, you will know me because I live. In other words, the death that I'm about to die does not have mastery over me, right? You are going to know that I am no longer physically here. You are actually going to see me physically die, but I will live. Jesus is proclaiming his triumphant victory over death. And he says, and I on that day you will know am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and you will know that because I am in you, and you are in me. And Jesus is making this incredible connection between the fact that he is dwelling in the Father and that as followers of Christ, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us and we are literally dwelling in Christ. And the disciples, man, this is just mind-boggling for them because they still can't fathom a world where Jesus isn't there. So Jesus says again, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Right? Second time he said that. If you have my commands and obeys them, you love me. And he who loves me will love by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. So he says, listen, you love me, you will obey me. Your love is tied to your desire to obey what I am telling you. And my Father will love you, you will be loved by us, and I will show myself to you. Well, the disciples' minds are, they're not even tracking. They are all still hung on this notion that Jesus is going away. And now we hear from Judas, not Judas Iscariot, who's sort of taken off to go set those wheels of the betrayal arrest in motion, but the other Judas. And he says, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not the world? So they're, they're really hung on all of these things. The pieces of the puzzle are unfolding, and so they say, God, Lord, why are you going to show yourself to us? Why don't you magnificently show yourself to the whole world? Like, why don't you actually hang from the sky and be like, look, it's me, right? Why don't you do something amazing? Why are you just showing yourself to us? Because they, of course, are hung on all the physical attributes of what Jesus is saying. They're hung on Jesus physically showing them his body or his presence. They're hung on Jesus saying, I've got a physical location that I'm going to. They're hung on Jesus saying, the place I'm going, you can't come. They are tied deeply to the physical and the worldly, and they can't see the spiritual of what Jesus is talking about, that he is going to return spiritually to the Father that he is going to send the Holy Spirit who is going to dwell in us spiritually, that we are going to be in Christ and he is going to be in us spiritually. And he's not talking about physically showing himself in terms of this bodily picture of Jesus, but instead showing himself to us through his presence, right? But Judas doesn't get it, and Jesus doesn't pay any attention to Judas, right? He just goes on. He's like almost like Judas, like, 
just in the air somewhere. And Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. So Jesus ignores almost completely Judas' question, which is interesting because John records it, right? I mean, he records Judas going, wait, time out. Why? And then Judas, Jesus goes, I'm, I'm talking here, bud. And he says this. He says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, you've got to be paying really close attention to understand. This seems like the third time that Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me, right? Obey my commands. The first two times Jesus used that term. If you love me, you will do what I command. If you love me, you will obey what I command. But this time he uses a very different, slightly, subtly ch- change, slightly subtle change in words that is incredibly important. And he says this. He ignores Judas's question and says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my, and then the word there is teaching. He doesn't use the word command, which is really interesting, and here's why. That word that we use for the word teaching is actually the word that we've heard in here before, that we've talked about exclu- exclusively when we talk about Jesus. It's the word logos. Now, if you remember from John chapter 1, we learn that John tells us that Jesus is the word of God. That Jesus is the very logos of God. And the word logos means divine utterance, teaching, or directive, right? It translates as word. It's a really powerful term when used in connection with the divine. And so Jesus says, this time, if you love me, you will obey my logos. You will obey my logon, is what he says here, my word. Not just saying the things that I command you, like love your neighbor as yourself, right? But you will command my very, you will obey my very words. Every word that falls from my lips, my teaching, you will obey if you love me. And then my father will love you, right? And we will make our home in him. So here's the connection that Jesus makes. If you love me, you will love my word. And my father will love you because you love my word. And we've already seen the connection between the Father and the Son. John 10.30, the Father and the Son are one. We've already seen the connection between Jesus, the advocate, the paraclete, the first, and the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, that comes in as the advocate. We've seen the relationship between the Son and the Spirit and the Father and the Son. We've seen this connection. And so if we obey the word of Christ, we love him, and the Father loves us because we love Jesus, and therefore we love Jesus' word. And the word of Jesus, as we're getting ready to see, is also the word of the Father. The very end there in chapter or verse 34, he says, He who does not love me will not love or obey my teaching. The word logos there again. These words, same word logos, will you will hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So the words that Jesus is talking about are actually the words of God. Now I say all this, sounds super confusing, to basically say this. If you love Jesus, right, you will love the Father. If you love Jesus, You will obey what he teaches and commands. If you love Jesus, you will love his word. And the word of Jesus is not just the word of Jesus, it's the word of God. If you love Jesus, you will love God's word. You will love it. In all of my life, I have heard, I can't count how many people over the years that have told me, Trevor, I love Jesus, but I'm not sure I really love or can get behind the Bible. Like, it just seems like maybe that's too much, and so I'm not sure that's the Word of God. Or I'm not sure that it it applies to us as it is today, but I do love Jesus, and I, I love Jesus' teaching. Well, of course, that concept is incredibly fatally flawed, 
Because to love Christ is to love his word, and to love his word is to love God's word because they're one and the same. And scripture tells us that scripture itself, as I say every week when we pray, is God-breathed. It is the theopunestos, which means it is the breath of God. It is the very vapor of his breath. It is the utterance, his divine utterance for you and I. It's why we have such an incredibly high standard of scripture around here. Because it's not a guidebook that's used for our lives that we can pick and choose things out of and say, I like this or I don't like this or this is culturally relevant and this isn't, so I'm going to ignore this because culture pushes against it. God's word in its entirety is his very breath. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my word, my logos. You will love my teaching. It's why I want you to have a love affair with God's word. Because to have a love affair with God's word is to have a love affair with God. They are not separable. We either love God's word and love God or we don't. God's word is his expression of who he is. And it's why when we look at Scripture, that I don't stand up here on a Sunday morning and give you a four-point sermon on why friendship is really important, or whatever the topic is for that week. Those topics come out of text. They don't drive our teaching of text. We'll hear about friendship when Jesus talks about friendship. I want you to have a love affair with God's Word, because to have a love affair with God's Word is to have a love affair with God. We should spend our life involved in pages of scripture. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my logos. Because they're not from me, it's from the Father. If you love me, you will love my word. If you love me, you will obey me because you love me. These are really powerful, incredible things that should drive our heart. And we love Jesus and we don't perform our love for him, but we get to obey him. And we love his word because it's his very breath for us. And it's not just some culturally irrelevant instruction manual for our lives. So when you think about this text, I want you to understand that what Jesus is really preparing the disciples for is the fact that he's leaving and he loves them. He's not abandoning them. He's actually leaving them for something much greater, to return to the Father, to serve as their advocate, to stand in the presence for you and I between holy God and death as the paraclete. And he's going to send another paraclete, another advocate, to not just walk physically present like Jesus did, but to dwell inside the heart of every believer, to be in you. And that when you surrender your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit literally takes up residence in you. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit who serves in the same capacity of ministry as Jesus, as the advocate, comforter, helper, counselor. But most importantly, right, the stand-in between God and all of his holiness and you and all of your sinfulness. To advocate for your life, victory over death, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if you love Jesus because of how he saved you and what he did for you when you could do nothing on your own, if you love him, you will desire to do what he calls you to do. His commands and his teaching, right? If you love him, and if you love him, you will love his words and Jesus' words are the words of life. And if you love him, you have a love affair with God's word because they're interchangeable. They're connected. They are the same. So we end by just kind of going, ta-da, right? Because here we are. 
And like I said, there's not a full, like, great picture of how these things all play together, but they're theologically powerfully important. So all that to just say this. If you love Jesus, right, if you love Jesus, obey him. If you love Jesus, love his word. Be a lover of the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this. Well, what is really complicated at times, a theologically deep text, and doesn't necessarily always perform its sort of easy way of understanding. We've got to dig in deep. We've got to understand some words. We've got to understand the word, the word idea of paraclete, and the idea of, of, of logos. We've got to understand some of these pieces that are really incredibly powerful. Lord, my prayer for this church has always been the same, and it will never change. And that's that as a church, we would fall in love with you and your word. So what I pray every day. God, as a church, we would fall in love with you and with your word. And so, God, I pray this morning that what this would reiterate to our souls is that to love you is to love your word. God, to love you is to want to and deeply desire to obey you. And so, Lord, make us men and women and children that love the word of God and love to obey you, Jesus. For if you love me, you will obey what I command. If you love me, you will obey my logos, my teaching. For they are not your words alone, Jesus, but they are united with the Father. Lord, we pray that as we close our time in worship, you would ready our hearts, developing a powerful connection between you and God's word and our love affair with you in Scripture. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. Let's stand and close our time in worship.